Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. Seth Powers holds his MBA from the University of Connecticut and his master's in public health from Yale. He's the co-director of the Center for Children with Special Needs. And CCSN is a multidisciplinary behavioral health practice that has been serving patients, families, school systems, and governmental partners since 1994. Seth has a strong eye towards system-level capacity building models. Uh, and Seth, welcome to the pod. Great to see you. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Seth, tell me about your entrepreneurial journey at CCSN. It's a good question. And sometimes it's hard to think about what does entrepreneurialism look like in an organization that's been around for 30 years. Um, and it looks different from an organization that's a startup. So I joined CCSN formally about seven years ago and uh, had informally been associated with it my whole life. My father started the practice in 1994, and through the first part of my career, I was in business, I was in finance, um, business development work, um, and one of the things that he and I would frequently talk about in the earlier years of the center were um, what he was doing and how he was thinking around the clinical components of this practice and the the business side of things and the strategy side of things. and. Um, we would have conversations to and from my rise to business school when I was going at night in the early part of my career. And I was sort of sharing with him what I was learning in class without realizing he was probably getting an MBA by proxy. So through the years, we continued that conversation and we got to a point where CCSN had grown to be pretty large. And the, our conversations were thinking around what does the organization look like and what does the organization need from a business perspective such that it can continue on its clinical mission as effectively for the next 30 years as it has for the past 30 years? And that was an ongoing conversation for years. And when we looked at that, we looked at what are some of the best practices from business? What are the things that businesses do really, really well, um, regardless of industry? So healthcare and non-healthcare. And, and are there some of those tools, some of those themes, some of those best practices that we could find a way to bring into CCSN to help really unlock additional opportunities, um, find ways to serve families and school systems and educational partners in ways that we hadn't been able to historically or build upon the systems that we had in place that were really good. So, you know, I don't think of, uh, I don't think of what we do as being entrepreneurial. Although I, I suppose in the strictest sense, it could be considered as such. I, I, I think a lot about what we do of how do we find those systems, find those tools, learn from other industries and bring them in to continue what we believe to be a really strongly mission-driven practice. Um, and we've seen a lot of success in that. We've certainly had our challenges, I think like many have, but we've seen a lot of success and we're looking forward to where we're going to be able to go forward from here. I like how you describe the idea of like MBA by proxy, because I, I think in our field, like seeing those like letters MBA, it's almost like, ooh, there's this, I don't know what's, there's this like veil put up. And, and, and honestly, like I have my MBA too, but 
like that's that was and it was a phenomenal experience don't get me wrong but it was mostly a great experience because i met great people i could travel around the world right and i got exposed to different um you know it, some different concepts but like getting your mba legitimately is truly about like working in an organization and like failing through things learning and that feels like me to an mba and i think that's what i heard as you described mba by proxy is that right the my experience with the mba it sounds like perhaps it was similar to yours was as i was going through it at least at uconn i think uconn had a reasonably strong program when i did it but it felt like you were learning how to be a really good worker for somebody there wasn't a lot of critical thing it was how do you work within a big established system mm -hmm. so i was finding what i was doing a lot of was having to translate and how to translate what we were learning in the classroom to at the time i was working full-time so how do you translate what you're learning in the classroom to what you're doing um, in a full-time setting. I was not in um, healthcare at the time. And that act of translating and that that effort of going through and really trying to figure out what are the concepts, what are the deeper meanings, how do you figure out a, a case study that's around somebody who opened a brewery, and how do you leverage those same concepts mm. to support you know, distribution across a, a, a new small business network, as an example, which is some of the stuff I was doing before. So I feel like I had gotten a lot of experience in that translation, and I was I was experiencing even during the course of the or the course of the program that there wasn't there were limits to how applicable and how much I could generalize directly. So when it gave me the opportunity to come to CCSN, for me it almost felt a little bit like we had these superpowers in sense like big businesses, you know, Fortune 500 companies figure out how to do this stuff real well. These places are chock full of you know, people who know this stuff have gone to these programs, have really understood, you know, how to do some of these systems exceptionally well and efficiently. And how do we take those same concepts and bring them to something that's mission driven? And the, getting into something that we felt was mission driven and was that it was really moving the needle for people's lives and being able to see that improvement. It was fulfilling in a way and it continues to be fulfilling in a way that I haven't experienced other places professionally. So um, bringing that skill set and figuring out how to do it in an environment where there's both a both a need. I think that you know when you when we talk about and when I've met other um, behavioral health practice leaders, people have varying degrees of background. Some of them have business, some of them have no business, some of them have pure clinical, and they grew their practice. So it's I think everybody's kind of learning in this community together, and there's a big appetite for that. But there's also in many ways and. I've shared this term with you before, but a bit of uh, what I perceive to be a dual mandate in healthcare. So it's not maximizing the bottom line is not the goal in healthcare. It's having really exceptional clinical outcomes. And, and how do we measure for that? And how do we implement systems that support that? And in many ways, my experience had been the MBA doesn't prepare you for that. It prepares you for how to make quarterly statements and how to how to do all of the financially driven things because in business that's what's that that is what rules the roost. In healthcare, that's not what it is. And if and if anything, mm -hmm. the way that we've approached it at CCSN with with I think a reasonable amount of success has been we know what the clinical mission is and we know what we want to do and we know that we want to improve the lives of our patients and our families. And we want to be able to implement large scale change. How do we take all of the tools we have in our tool belt, whether we got them um, from clinical backgrounds, whether we got them from business backgrounds, from healthcare backgrounds, from whatever, and how do we bring the best of those tools together to serve that mission? Mm, just I, that, that, that's just like a, a beautiful melange that you, you painted. And I like that you described the dual mandate. That is 
and I actually think about this as like a, I don't know, a trifecta mandate. I don't know if that's the right term, but it's patient outcomes, patient satisfaction, and caregiver or employee satisfaction. And solving for all three of those, I think, is part of the beautiful opportunity that is healthcare. But part of, frankly, what makes healthcare so hard, right, is trying to maximize across all of them. Like, coming back to this idea of like, you know, building, creating systems and, and borrowing from the best, I know you've been focused at CCSN. On, on creating these scalable operations. What prompted that, Seth? And, and what advice do you have for ABA organizations who want to build out really replicable, high-quality operations? Let me open with we're still in the process. So I want to I want to I can share my personal experience and my personal perspective on this. Um, I have also learned far more from working with colleagues, from talking to folks like you, um, talking to other folks, and trying to broaden my own knowledge base. So I, I, I come to this as a student, not as an expert. I want to open there. What we've seen is that the center for the first 20 years of its existence was a pretty small organization. Uh, you know, 20, 30 people. We didn't have any, we didn't accept any commercial insurance. It was all fee for service. We had uh, big contracts that were pretty stable. So in many ways, the operational side of that didn't have the degree of complexity that we saw since we moved into a model that accepted commercial insurance where we have ABA and outpatient mm -hmm. therapy and occupational therapy, credentialing providers, insurance contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the things that we saw were that the systems that the organization had in place were great systems. And we just that we were outgrowing them. And at times we were outgrowing them more quickly than we realized, or we were having systems that we had outgrown already, but we were staying with them because we knew them and they were comfortable and they were functionally working. One of the analogies I say to the team is that the hardest thing to do is change a tire on a car when you're going 60 miles an hour down the highway. If you're running a little low before you get in the car, change the tire. And it can be really hard <laughs> to change something that isn't presently broken, but because you're worried about it or you think, or if you look where the future's headed, that you're concerned that there's going to be stress points on it, changing something that otherwise feels like it's working is, is tough. And it's a hard sell job at times. Um, and for an organization where we hadn't had to have that sort of seismic change, and we've been able to, we had been able to make these very kind of small incremental changes for decades, um, there was a lot of change management that we've been working through the team to support that. In terms of the system building and the scalability, you get to a point where, particularly with insurance-based models, so much of it is contingent upon volume. So where can you maximize the service delivery time and the time that's dedicated to service delivery or clinical review or clinical note-taking and minimize transaction time? So as an example, if we have our clinicians and it takes them four minutes extra to I don't know, convert a note or to do some sort of documentation because the process that we've designed behind the scenes is inefficient. Um, and we're going from SharePoint to a server to online. And it, it just, it makes it hard. We get into a position there where you, you multiply that and you look at that at scale and you say, what if we had a hundred clinicians that each had four minutes per transaction back a day? What does that look like? How much more time could they spend slowing down and writing their clinical notes or talking to their colleagues or how can we de-stress the system? So as we're thinking around this from an operational perspective, it's a lot of how do we build these systems that can scale? And then also how do we build systems that are replicable across multiple people? 
So one of the things that we had the luxury of doing is for years, because we were so small, we could say, oh, you know, Seth is just going to do this, or, or Mark's just going to do this, or Jonathan's just going to do this. And you get bigger and you can't have somebody who's entirely responsible for a vertical because it becomes completely overbearing. You can't have one person in our size that's doing insurance. You can't have one person doing scheduling. So then it comes back to the best practice of if you're going to have to have other people involved, if you need to have other people involved to have the right level of support and redundancy and, you know, God forbid somebody take a vacation or, or, or any of the things that call us out of work, the organization has the back end mechanism so that we can continue. So looking at how do we bring in technology, how do we leverage people's strengths, how do we really document and build replicable models, especially operationally, administratively has been key. We are... CCSN is so exceptionally fortunate because we have clinical teams that are, and I don't say this hyperbolically, global experts in training. Uh, we have teams that go all over the world to provide training programs, capacity building programs. We've done international work for decades all over the globe. And we are now in a position where we're saying, let's take some of those best practices around how do we train and support other organizations and let's look, let's look inward. And let's make sure that our own processes are following those best practices. And let's give ourselves all of the care and attention that we've given others such that we can be really successful and effective in that scale. Getting to a mm. point where getting to a point where organizationally we are clear and comfortable and transparent and redundant in our in our back-end systems will allow for better, better clinical care. And I think we're all very clear-eyed on that. And pushing through and managing through the change in order to facilitate that um, is change. I, I heard a great quote years ago at a, at a leadership conference. Um, it was uh, the only people who like change are wet babies. So, you know, part of this is helping people understand the change. There's, there's great change management models. Um, you know, we've used the ADCAR model in the past, but there's great change management models to help people sort of process through and get to the new state. And um, we've seen a lot of really exciting success. We've had a great team who's been very involved, very committed. Uh, so it's an exciting part of our journey right now on that mission. Uh, dude, I, I mean, you, like, you spoke to me on so many levels here, and I want to come back and ask you about that ADCAR uh, model of change management, because I think the change management is just something that's so hard to get right. Um, but, you know, you said um, this idea of like four minutes, if we can say four minutes on a session note, right? What, what's really important that like, like I, I want people to hear here is there's no silver bullet. When you're thinking about how do we get more time back for our clinical team to fulfill like this triple bottom line? Like there's not a silver bullet. It's at the level of um, understanding like discrete effort and how you rec reclaim that discrete effort back. In fact, like in my management consulting career, we used to have activity-based costing projects where we would go in and you'd say, whether it's in a manufacturing facility or distribution warehouse, whatever it was, and you would actually time say, how long does each of these things take? And then where can we recapture 30 seconds a minute? Uh, maybe multiple minutes. So that's really important. And this idea that like, as a rapid and most ABA providers, I think generally are growing quickly because there's so much need. Like every time an organization triples in size, everything breaks to your point around like the car and needing to like fill up tires, right? Going 60 miles an hour. Um, so that all resonates, but tell me more about the, the ad car uh, model of change management. Let me, I, I absolutely speak about ad car. One, one thing I also want to tell you, know, when we think around the transaction time, it's not, it's the, 
at times there's like the obvious things like could i change where a note format is housed and that way you don't have to go to six places and it gets done more quickly mm -hmm. um that's a pretty linear change but there's also changes that are a little bit more peripheral so as an example if part of your model depends on email communication and the email communications then become overwhelming and then people can't get to their emails because they've got 400 emails a day and then other things fall off you have this cascading effect so there's a there is an inefficiency and the genesis of that inefficiency is born from a system a system that had been designed that had worked at a point in time but has either out we've outgrown or we've evolved beyond or our operations have become complex to the point it no longer works and pick what it is but what you have is you have this cascading effect. And then in that cascading effect, there's ripples. So what happens if you have a team member who can't get out of an email bin of 400 emails and every day they come in and they can do 300 and then there's 400 the next day and that debt continues to grow? That's a, that's an, a huge employee satisfaction concern. It's a, it's a huge burnout concern. Mm -hmm. um, then it creates stress and frustration because that stress and frustration of someone saying, hey, Seth, I emailed you on this. Didn't you see it? And I want to say, of course I didn't see it. Do you know how many emails I get? So what it is a, again, not to overstate this, but like these, these systems can become cancerous and it is not just a, oh, it'd be nice if we can save a minute or two here. It's that if you don't address these things, they can, they can, I think that they can cause failure in an organization. Um, so I, I, when we think around what our priorities are, I am so steadfastly focused, along with uh, my co-director, Mark Palmieri, on addressing these items. They, we can't be successful unless we have back-end systems that will allow us to be successful. Um, sorry, I took you off a little bit there. <laughs> uh, <you> had <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, what you're, what, you're, well, what you're describing is like this level of intention around operations and systems and models that I think it's easy to take for granted that those will just sort of evolve. And no, as you're pointing out, this is not just like a full-time job. It's like a full-time organizational investment of energy uh, in order to get that right. Um, but yeah, tell me, uh, tell me briefly about ADCAR. I will share with you my understanding of it, which is a non-academic understanding by a mile. But it was, um, it's a change management That's model fair. that, <laughs> it's a change management model that sort of works across different steps towards change. So awareness, desire, knowledge, ability, and reinforcement. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of these various change management type models, but sort of the idea is you can't start introducing, here's gonna be a new system until you have an organization that understands what the, what the deficiencies in the current system are. And it's a model of sort of helping people through that. And uh, like I said, there, there's, pl there's plenty of different models in this one. This is one that I was exposed to early in my career and it stuck, but you know, making people aware of what the issue is first and then uh, the desire to change. So, you know, hey, first the system sucks. Okay, now I get that it sucks. Now I want to change. I don't know how to change. So then introducing the knowledge for how to do that. Say, so this is the way that you do it. And then giving people the tools in order to actually affect that change. And once they're doing that, going to a reinforcement model. Um, I don't have a clinical background, but there's pretty strong similarities to clinical service delivery models on some of this too. Yeah, it sounds like that there's like it's it's behavior analytic informed, if not, um, you know, fully created by behavior analysts. Um, and that's powerful. And one of the things I think I learned early in my career around change management is like focus like 80 percent of my time on the why 
to your point around like helping people understand deficiencies as opposed to the what and here's how you now fill out this new form or make this request or schedule this session it's people have to be bought into and understand the why so 80 percent of the time on that is critical well you mentioned your your co-director seth um and and like me i'm a co-ceo in, in my two organizations with my uh co-founder business partner will Bainig. Uh, that's pretty unique in our field, man. And, and actually, I'll, I'll tell you, like three and a half years ago, before Will and I formally became co-CEOs, I have I still have an email that I sent to like our advisor and, and Will that was like, if we ever consider co-CEO, then just like fire me because I think who would ever be a co-CEO? Stupid. The only person I knew was like Mark Benioff from Salesforce. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. Like he and his co-CEO, Mark Benioff would wear like the uh, uh, the Hawaiian shirts. So anyway, the Hawaiian shirts are cool, but whatever. So, but yeah. So, but this is pretty rare. Why did you create a co-director position and, and what's been your experience? The um, So I want to, I guess, first open with, I didn't create it myself. So we, this was a collaborative effort and we decided really, what does the organization need? Um, we need to have really, really strong business operational administrative leadership and we need to have exceptionally strong clinical leadership. You know, we have for the entirety of CCSN, the organization has driven itself to be in the 99th percentile for clinical service delivery. Um, we need to be operating at the same level on the business operational administrative side. So what this co-director model allowed us to do is, um, so my co-director, the co-director at CCSN, Dr. Mark Palmieri is a psychologist. He's a BCBA. Um, he's been leading the organization clinically for, uh, I think coming on 20 years and he's exceptional and he's, and, and we are, he does things clinically that I would never be in a position to be able to do. And he can provide that level of clinical leadership and insight. And he understands what the needs are of the organization. He can help conceptualize cases for the team. And we, we viewed as an organization um, and the three of us had talked about this, we talked about this at CCSN, having a model where we have the top of the clinical pyramid be a clinician is really important. Um, those are clinical decisions. And when there's times that the clinical decisions and the financial decisions butt up against each other, those are conversations that Mark and I have directly. And what we do is we insulate the rest of the team from the financial implications to the extent we can, from the financial implications to clinical decision-making. We have always said, we're gonna do the right clinical thing, whether it means we're doing it pro bono, whether it means that we're taking on a case that's gonna require 10X the amount of time that we would have anticipated that it would because we need to have that degree of case conferencing and case management. So we do those things because those are the right things to do clinically. At the same time, I wouldn't have any expectation that Mark would be able to manage a balance sheet or figure out details around a PL or build financial models to stand up um, you know new centers new service lines what, what have you to the extent that I would because I have that training and I have that experience so what he and I have found is that this shared leadership model has actually been I think it's been exceptional um, there's a tremendously high degree of bi-directional trust between he and I which is important and you know through the years, he and I have had to figure out how do we have, how do we manage an organization with two peers at the head of it? And how do we work through things at a point of consensus where there's not going to be somebody who says, we're doing it this way, we're doing it that way. Um, it has forced at times decisions to go a little bit more slowly, but I think it's forced us to really think hard around our values and making sure that we are not violating one for the other. 
So a good example would be, and, and this wouldn't happen, but you know, an example would be if the right clinical decision was to take on a service line that was going to lose us money every time we did it, we need to have somebody who can build and understand those financial models. And we need to then have the ability to, to collaborate and say, this might be a really exciting clinical thing, but here are the ramifications. So if we want to do that, here's what our trade-offs can be. Um, or maybe we don't do it because it's overstressed the system. And, and that has worked really nicely. Um, same going the other direction of, you know, we've, uh, we're participating with a, a grant, uh, a waiver program in the state of Connecticut for individuals with, acqu with acquired brain injury. Um, and it's been a really interesting clinical endeavor. It is not something core to necessarily what we would have historically done, but it has given our team the opportunity to support this population and do so in a really impressive and exciting way. Um, and now being invited in to present at their conferences and, and really step into a new service area. Um, that was something where we had to figure out how do we make the economics of this work? It's completely different. They're state-funded mm -hmm. programs and economics are never quite as favorable, but how do we do that? And we've been able to do it because of that really high degree of coordination and collaboration between he and I. And it's been really exciting and it's an area that we're seeing a lot of growth in. Mm -hmm. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. Element's your partner, so you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Element's a preferred partner of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you, they know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system. And Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. Yeah, you, you, you said, um, I think you said tremendously high degree of bi-directional trust. And I think this is really critical to um, what sounds like has been a really successful experience for, for you um, and Dr. Paul Mary and, and for me and, and Will, it's like, it, it, it requires sort of like clarity up front, but then the, the right partnership. So this idea of co-directors or co-CEOs isn't right for every organization, but it is absolutely powerful when you do have that trust. And yeah, I mean, and, and thinking about speaking about trust, you're part of a family business. And there's this, there's this interesting expression in Chinese, um, Seth, about from rice paddy to rice paddy in three generations. That is, you know, you've got like the, 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 someone who works hard and then like gains wealth and starts a, a business and passes it down to their son. And that goes, okay. And then goes to this next generation that boom, before you know it, like <laughs> the family's back in the rice paddy. But clearly you all have been successful. What have you learned working with family in a business? There's a, it's an interesting question. And if you were to, if you were to talk to the folks at our organization, I don't think people would describe it as a family business, which is, so the relationship exists, but it's not, it has never been conceptualized like that. There was, and there was never a period of like, because you're family that you're going to be involved. Actually, it was, it was quite the opposite. And my original involvement first came when we were doing some um, consulting early on around sort of what's some strategic planning for, for CCSN. And I was supporting it from the outside. 
and I was providing sort of thought and insight and feedback. And one of the one of the outcomes of that whole process was the consultants at the time uh, looked at my father who started the practice and they said, you probably should figure out a way to get him in here because I think he could be helpful for you guys <laughs> long term. So it was, uh, I think that it happened, the family piece of it made it really nice. It wasn't critical. I, I'll tell you, you know, what I said to people early on. So um, we have we have grown so much over the last couple of years in between COVID and all kinds of things. I haven't had an office for like two years. So right now I'm in my home office. I'm, I'm usually in a laptop wherever I can find a, a little kid table in an open ABA room. But um, when I had an office, you know, one of the things that was so nice about that is, you know, I saw my dad every day. Like who is an adult gets to see their dad every day and like, you know, give your dad a hug every day. That was really special. Um, and, you know, and just getting the opportunity to do that and, and, and learn from him. He's, um, he's brilliant. He is. And I don't, I don't say that. I don't say that. Um, I say that very genuinely and having the opportunity to learn and to listen and to really see how he built an organization through the values that are important to him as a person and to see how those values have then grown and cascaded and created reputation, created careers for people, launched careers for folks who have moved on. It's really been, it, it has been such an honor. And I, I, I worked for, you know, before coming, I was senior in these various other organizations and had the opportunity to work for very senior leaders and be exposed to you know, the C-suites of the Fortune 100 types. And the leadership skills and the natural leadership abilities that I've experienced working with my father have been he, he is ahead of any of them. And they've all gone through all kinds of leadership courses and training. And, um, and the amount I've had the opportunity to learn there has, re has really been a gift. In terms of what the family dynamic is, though, we have, we've worked pretty hard at that, to be honest, to make sure that we are able to bifurcate. Um, you know, we talk about work when it's time to talk about work. When we talk about family, it's time to talk about family. So if we see each other on the weekends, we're not talking about things here. You know, when he's visiting his granddaughter, he's visiting his granddaughter. We're not talking about things that are going on at the office. And we're, we've had to be pretty boundaried. That's been a, it's been a bit of a learning curve through the years for both of us. Um, but we've, but I think we've gotten pretty good at it. And that's been really important. It's also, you think about a family business and, you know, one of the things that I had to contend with, and it, it, again, very openly and honestly, is that, you know, when I was brought in, it was like, Oh, Michael's son is here. What kind of nepotism is this? And it was almost, it, it, you had to, and it was something that was real and it was important and you had to confront it head on. So like, you know, what am I doing there? So is it, is it, oh, he's just got his son here because X, Y, or Z it's, or it's because this is somebody regardless of familiar relation who has background and experience who can help this organization to be successful. And, um, and that took effort from everybody uh, to kind of work over that hump, Ooh. including myself. I had to figure out how do I how do I personally overcome that or overcome that perception? And I think through the years, you know, at this point, I've been there long enough. I, I think that that's probably largely subsided or it's in the background. Um, but that's a thing. And I think that it's something where if there's others who are going to be going into this space or considering doing sort of a similar model, don't lie to yourself and say that it's not real. So you might be the, the best psychologist in the entire world. But if you're going to go in and work for family members, there's going to be like, oh, well, you know, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan's mom owns the place. So here he is again. Um, so I think these are the kind of things that you're important and there, and there's cultural importance too. 
So to pretend that it wasn't there when it was on everybody's mind is a challenge. You, you have to talk about it. You have to confront it head on, address the concerns. Um, and I think it's something where, you know, we, we've done that successfully. I don't, I think we're years beyond that being any sort of an issue, but it is something that was, that had been real. Um, it's also been really enjoyable though. So I, you know, I, I don't want to cloud this whole experience. Actually, it's been tremendously enjoyable and it's been fun to grow something with a bunch of like-minded folks who really want to invest and grow in what we all believe to be just exceptional clinical care. Mm. Dude, the wisdom and intention uh, that I keep hearing is just awesome, Seth. And and so let me let me pivot. Uh, You know, right? Actually, this episode is going to drop, and you're speaking um, uh, uh, in early March um, at the Behavior Analyst Leadership Council conference uh, in Miami. And so, um, uh, and I just learned about this conference like a few months ago. I'll be honest. Like, and I was so excited to know that it was happening. Uh, What's your topic? What's the most important takeaway? You want the audience to have. So Mark and I are presenting together on this, and we're actually going to do a, a presentation on the balance of business and clinical leadership. So how do we, how do you lead an organization? Um, it, we, I don't know that we'll specifically talk about a, a co-director model, but that general idea of how do you bring together the business and the clinical to ensure exceptional outcomes. We have, I think, a full day workshop, and then we're doing a, or a half day workshop, and then we have a, a shorter talk on one of the later days. Um, so it should be great. This is a really good conference. We've been participating in it as it's been in Connecticut the last couple of years. Um, obviously, with, with COVID, things have gone a little bit sideways, but we're really excited to be down there presenting. As we're in there, we'll be talking around, you know, what are some of the tools? What are some of the things that we've done? Um, what are, where, very openly, where are some of the challenges that we've had? How have we overcome those challenges? You know, we've, we view our participation in the behavioral health uh, autism care provider community to be um, a very collaborative one. And, you know, one of the things that I've so appreciated about organizations like Bulk or organizations like CASP, the Council for Autism Service Providers, has been this community and this willingness for us all to help each other along. Um, there's enough pie to go around and we have the ability to help each other get better at what we do and learn from one another. And you know, as much as I've called you before, you know, certainly before this podcast, and I've asked you if you could talk to our team about some of the things that you guys have done at Ascend that have been so successful, um, I've had the opportunity to do that for other organizations too. And I think that this this feeling of community and this openness is going to be helpful for everybody. I think one of the things that I think about here, because someone might look at that outside of this interview and say, you're giving away competitive secrets. What the hell are you doing? You know, how are you ever going to be the best, the biggest, the most profitable, whatever, if you're giving away all your tricks. I think it should be open source. We're not doing anything special. We'll tell everybody every single thing that we're doing and you do it better than us. And then tell us how you improve so we can do it better. Because at the end of the day, the people that are going to win here are going to be our patients and their families. Um, We are going to have better clinical outcomes. Mm -hmm. We're going to see improved patient care. We're going to see higher employee satisfaction. We will collectively have a better sense around what public policy initiatives we should be pushing for, we should be working with our legislative partners for. Um, this all gets better the more we all work together. And we, we've seen that certainly through CASP where we can harness the power of so many smart and motivated and vision-oriented colleagues to really move the needle on things. Um, you know, Laura Yunam at CASP has been a, just a force and it's been it's been so exciting to work with her and to partner with her and you know to, to help drive her mission uh, as she, you know, as an example, led autism insurance bills in all 50 states. So this is things that 
the more we come together, the more we can dedicate to improve um, all of our organizations. Mm, listeners, pay attention. This idea of pay it forward, I believe, is an obligation. And to your point, Seth, the people who win are clients and families, our team members, when we can do things better, when we can collaborate. And this old era of like, conflict in our fields and guardedness. I don't give a shit what happened and like why all that happened. Like what's important is that leaders now can uh, move the spirit of collaboration forward. So like in that spirit of collaboration, Seth, what's one thing every ABA business owner and leader should start doing? It's one, and what's one thing they should stop doing? As I said before, I want to preface with, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound preachy here. So I'll, I'll tell you the things that we have found to be successful and the things that we have found to be challenging. And, um, and hopefully others can garner some insight from that if that's helpful. Something, if you haven't done this already, is take the time to distill down what's really important and what's really important professionally. So what are the four or five things your organization needs to do to be successful? Um, if for folks who are familiar with the concept of a balanced scorecard, I'm a big proponent of that. A balanced scorecard is a way to look across key domains and then list two, three, four really key initiatives or um, quality indicators across each of those primary domains. With the idea being that when you can distill down to this more manageable list of things to watch, um, other things follow from that. So, as, as an example, if client satisfaction is important to you, there's a pretty high likelihood there's going to be a relationship between, to some degree, client satisfaction, staff satisfaction, clinical outcomes. Not exclusively, but you know you can't just give people what they want forever and ever and ever. But at the same time, if you've got clients who are just really, really unhappy, that's probably going to mean that there's more turnover and they're not going to stay with you as long. Then staff aren't going to have the ability to form those longitudinal relationships. And then you're going to have a lot of it, you potentially are going to have staff turnover issues. And then you're going to be running into instances where your clinical outcomes are going to suffer because you're not going to have the ability to work on whatever the programs are over the prescribed period of time. So focus on these things, find these things that are important in financial domains and operational domains and clinical domains and satisfaction domains and list them out and make sure they are radically transparent. Every single person in the organization should know exactly what they are. Um, you don't have to give the detail on everything. You don't have to, you know, it may be inappropriate for your behavior technicians to know what your financial objectives are, but you can let them know that there's financial objectives that the team is managing. Business leaders, in my perspective, in this industry, in all industries, in this industry in particular, have a responsibility to make sure that we are guiding organizations to be fiscally viable and fiscally sustainable. We have people who depend on us for their paychecks, for their college tuition payments, um, for their professional development. And as much as perhaps people would love to give all the clinical care away for free, because I know that that's a, uh, you know, we have really good hearted people that work in this industry. Uh, there has to be a business side on the back end in order to facilitate that. Um, we have frequently said at CCSN, we will take care, we, we strive to take care of our employees and their families, as well as our employees take care of our patients and our patients' families. Um, and that mm. means being able to provide competitive wages and strong benefits and time off and all of these things that are important, but all these things that have financial implications. So running a business that facilitates and allows for that is essential. In terms of the things that organizations may wanna either stop or revisit if they're doing them, 
focusing on what some of those prior priorities are and allowing yourself to really zero in on what are the two, three, four, five things that your organization is going to do in a prescribed period of time. I think one of the things you talked about it earlier, you know, you have businesses that are growing, you know, three X in short amounts of time. One of the things that can be hard is that there is a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of demand and how do you make sure that you have all the components in place so that if you're growing to meet that demand or you're, or you're changing or you're branching out in other areas that you're doing so in a way that's planful and calculated, there's tremendous risk mm. for growing. Too quickly. Um, we've seen that across multiple industries, certainly in our industry too. You know, I, I remember being at a conference and there was a, an ABA group who talked about that they were growing and they got into four States. And then only at that point did they realize that they were losing money on every transaction. And then they had to pull back from a bunch of states. Mm. Um, <laughs> there's a huge clinical implication to that. And, it, and not to mention um, careers, like that, the, the amount of stress that comes with that is completely overwhelming. So for organizations that are not doing this, slow down, be thoughtful, be planful around what those initiatives are and be focused. Um, better to do two, two or three things in a year really, really well than try to do 20 things 25% uh, of the way there. There's way more organizational. It, it is a nonlinear mm. relationship and the amount of stress your organization will um, experience from that. So well said. It is a nonlinear relationship. This is something that I've had that's been hard for me and critical for me to learn in my career is I want to do 50 things this year. And we recognize we're on a marathon. And if you're making your team sprint that entire marathon, they're going to puke full stop. So yeah. well said. All right. So where can people find you and CCSN online, Seth? CCSN is located in Connecticut. So for those of you who want to brave the uh, beautiful Connecticut winter weather, um, we are in Glastonbury. <laughs> uh, our website is www.ccsnct.org. So CCSN as in Connecticut.org. Um, we are actually about 90 days away from opening a new facility, which is exciting. So we've uh, we've been planning this and working on this for years, and yeah, we're uh, so we're going to be opening another facility in Connecticut. It's going to be in Farmington, Connecticut. It's going to be a full replication of all of our behavioral health services. So um, we're really excited about that. There's been a lot of planning. We're looking at probably a mid-April start timeline. Um, there's been a a lot of demand, a lot of requests from school partners out there from families who live in that area. Um, and we're really excited. And, you know, when we think around what are all the things that we needed to do to get to this point, and then what are going to be the things that we knew, need to do from this point forward, um, there's certainly, we feel like we're on the right trajectory. And there's a lot of these areas that we've been investing in to make sure we have the right levels of clinical supervision and, and clinical coordination and administrative support and coordination and technology and all of these things. And, uh, you know, Jonathan, you said earlier, Every time you triple, everything breaks. And I hadn't thought of it like that because we've never mm. tripled before. But now I'm like, oh, crap, what's going to be the next thing that breaks? <laughs> so, but, I think, but I think, you know, coming back to, you know, a little bit around the change management piece in ADCAR, one of the things that we had to do as we moved into this insurance, as we brought in this insurance-based part of our organization is go to a model of continuous quality improvement on our operational administrative side. Mm. So how do we ensure mm. that we are continuing to have conversations and continuing to look at every single process and not allowing ourselves to get static. And that's it. That's a big cultural change to say, like, here's the process. Yep. Let's come back and look at it in 10 years to saying, 
here's the process. Now, next week, let's look at it again and figure out where we have errors. And then the following week, we're going to be the exact same thing. And we're going to have this continuous period of refinement. And it's been really encouraging to see our team lean into that in such, in such an effective way and, and start to do that. So as we're looking forward towards, you know, our first replication, um, I have been leaning very heavily. We've been leaning very heavily on our colleagues in the industry um, through CASP, through Bulk, you know, through other professional networks to talk to them and say, hey, you guys have done this. How'd you do it? What'd you think about it? How'd you figure out how many chairs mm. you needed? You know, some of these really nuts and bolts mm. things. Uh, but anyways, this is a long-winded question of what's our website. But nice. that was the... Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. And listeners, you can find Seth on LinkedIn. Um, so check him out there. So, all right, Seth, are you ready for the last quick segment? Our hot take questions, rapid fire, quick, short of answers. Course. You all set? Sure. Yep. All right. You're on, you're on your deathbed. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? Being a good father. Mm. What's your most important self-care practice? In better times, it was sleep. We have a we have a toddler right now. It's not happening so much. <laughs> oh, toddlers and sleep—a uh, good combination. Do not make. If you said yeah. could cancel all meetings and skip all your responsibilities for a day, how would you spend the day? Um, probably going for a hike. Nice. A man after my own heart. Uh, what's the best Beatles song ever? Yesterday. Oh, it's beautiful. Can I tell you, Seth, a huge puzzle fan and in COVID did all kinds of puzzles. We did a 3000 piece Beatles puzzle, which was phenomenal. But I'll tell you, it took my, and it broke me and I haven't done puzzles <laughs> since, but I do. I love me some Beatles <laughs> too. Um, if, if, if you could give your 18 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Buy Bitcoin. Oh, Again, it no, you know what I, I say. I, um, yeah. um, <laughs> focus on the process as much as the outcome. I feel like the first part of my career, mm. I was I was driving pretty hard at what I perceived to be the various golden rings that come along the way. And um, you know, my wife has been a just such a wonderful support and partner. And she would say, "Slow down. This is the journey. Enjoy it." And um, I think I heard her for years, but I didn't really get it until we had children. And uh, she's been right this whole time, almost uh, almost 13 years together. So, <laughs> Well said. All yeah. right. Finally, if you could wear only one style of footwear for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, running shoes. I'm, I don't even know what the right answer is there. What is the right answer? <laughs> There's no right what answer. The right answer is you, what allows you, you to live your best boots? life. Uh, 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 yeah, I, I'd have, I think I'd have ski boots. That's a good one. That's a, that's a good question. Well, not when I was expecting. Nice rapid fire, Jonathan. Good way to end. <laughs> right. right. I said, this has been awesome. Man. I feel like we could talk for hours, hours more. I really appreciate your time and sharing all your wisdom. Likewise. Take care. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.